Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. As people who love badminton, we all know that it's not just about the sport itself. It's about the connections you make and the things that it teaches you as a person that you're able to bring to all of the other parts of your life. That's why we want to introduce you to the book Mirror of Magico, written by Al Liao, a former Taiwanese national badminton player who is as passionate about badminton as us. For those who love Harry Potter, you want to give this one a read because Al has authored a fantasy story where three different characters with varying personalities go on a journey of adventure and learning. And they realize that things don't just happen to you, they happen because of you. And by being yourself and spending time in your dreams, you can conquer the evils and be the best version of yourself. So make sure you check it out. Mirror of Magico, written by Ao Liao. You can find it in all leading bookstores and we'll leave the link in the podcast description. Today, we are joined by Pinakin Godse, a physiotherapist who completed his master's in musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapy from the University of South Australia. He has worked with the Sports Authority of India for badminton, hockey, boxing, judo, and athletics, and later at many private practices around Melbourne. Now, Pinnikin has himself been a professional badminton player in the past, so he knows our sport very well, and it gives him a better understanding of the athlete's attitude towards rehabilitation and performance enhancement. He has been an on-field physiotherapist and first aid coordinator for the Oceania Badminton Tournament in 2019 and 2020, the Australian Junior International Badminton Tournament in 2019, and the Australian Open Badminton Tournament as well in 2019. He has delivered multiple sessions for Badminton Victoria's Junior Development Camp. He is extremely passionate about badminton, which is fantastic because this is the perfect avenue for it and he enjoys working with the athletes' injury management and prevention. Now, most recently, I have had the privilege of experiencing Pinnikin's skills and expertise firsthand due to a lower back injury, but we'll talk about that a bit later today. In my experience with the load management work, which I do, is most of the injuries, like I would even put more than 90% of the injuries happen because of doing too much too soon after doing too little for too long. 
So you suddenly wants to do too much too soon where you haven't done anything for a long time and then you expect your body to be at the same level. So in Henry's case, what we figured out that the body wasn't ready for it, body wasn't strong enough to perform that skill. And at one point, body was like, that's it, that's enough. I'm just going to go into my battery saver mode. I'm just going to tighten everything up just to protect Henry. It's more about the protective pain. The body was telling Henry that, yes, we are not ready for it. Don't do it. I'm just going to create a pain. So your automatic response is stay away from it. Just like we get a swelling after ankle sprain, it creates a little bit of a cushioning around the ankle. So you notice it, there's a bit of a pain, so you automatically um, stay away from doing single leg jumps and those sort of things. Welcome onto the podcast, Pinnikin. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to have you on. And yes, we will come back to my lower back injury a bit later for those who are interested. But let's talk about you, Pinnikin and just give the listeners a bit of a background on yourself as well. So I grew up in India. So I started playing badminton because my mom used to play socially and I always used to tag along with her and it was a beautiful game. So I always liked playing with my mom and that's how I picked up. So I started playing badminton pretty much around at the age of eight or nine, but I started taking it seriously from the age of 10 and 11. And then I developed my skills. So I found a good coach. Um, then the entire physical conditioning, the mental conditioning came along. And that's how we went in through. I was playing professionally up to a state level in India, which was, of course, very competitive at that point. At one point, I sort of realized my limitations as a player as well. So that's why I went towards um, becoming a sports physio so I can stay in touch with the badminton. Yeah, Pinnikin. So, of course, with a history in badminton and, and playing professionally or up into that state level, what was it that made you decide that maybe you weren't you weren't going to be the best or that decision that you made to go into physio? Like, What was the thoughts running through your head and why did you make that choice? At one point, I sort of realized that this is my probably physical limitation or the skill limitation in terms of as a badminton player. And there's one big sort of an incident which stick along with me. As I was in India, the big player from India was Pulela Gopichan. Um, and Pulela Gopichan won England tournament and that sort of gave a major boost to Indian badminton at that point. I guess that was around 2000, 2001. But later on, he had a knee injury and such a fantastic player. And he was just out because of the knee injury and ongoing trouble with that. So that was a bit of a shock as a kid to me because we sort of idolized Gopichan. We sort of looked up to him and suddenly seeing your player go away just because of some injury, that just sort of shook me a little bit. At that point, after say one year or two, I sort of realized my limitations as well. So at that point, I wanted to stay in touch with the badminton. I wanted to do something with the badminton. I didn't want it to like completely hang up my boots and walk away from it. So I there were two options in front of me. Either I wanted to become a sports psychologist or I wanted to become a sports physio. I chose sports physio because it has all this physical conditioning around it, the physical aspect, the exercises and all those sort of things. However, the sports psychology is still a very interesting topic. And I sort of try to incorporate that in the management when I'm working with the players. So this is how a little bit of a story and a little bit of an impact seeing your idol go away with the injury that pushed me towards the badminton and, and the sports physio. It sounds like 
certainly a little bit older and mature in your thoughts at that time, Pinnikin. Give us an idea. How old were you when you actually had this sort of thought process? Were you sort of in your late teens heading on to university and that's when this conversation started and you, and you thought, okay, let's say, for example, you hit your peak or, or you feel like you've sort of maximized your potential as a player. How old were you um, then? And was it because you were also experiencing your own injuries and that sort of stuff as well? Or yeah, give us a bit of background there. No, that's a great question. First of all, fingers crossed, I never had any injury as such. But when I look back, I can come across quite a few reasons around it. When I realized that I cannot continue badminton as a professional player, that was around at the age of 19 to 20. So that when I was coming out of under 19 and going into the men's. So that was the point I sort of realized that I've sort of maximized my potential. And yes, as you mentioned, it may sound that I was mature, but let me tell you one thing. What helped me at that point was all the support system behind me. So all my coaches, all the physios working with, the strength and conditioning guys and all those sort of things. And especially my coaches. At, at that point, we, of course, there was not a big awareness about badminton in India. So our coaches used to play multiple roles. And we sort of came out of a different system where our coach used to tell us actually, like frankly, that, look, I've done my job. This is the best I can offer you as a coach. You should go to a different coach now and they might give you a different outlook and things like that. So even our coaches were pretty much aware of their limitations, but they were looking to get best out of the player. They were sort of more thinking about the game rather than thinking about themselves. So that's when my coaches sort of had a conversation with me, like, yes, if you want, you can continue to play socially. If you want, you can sort of keep on going with the badminton, but just make sure that you are not sort of dependent only on the badminton in terms of your career, in terms of your life. And that was a, I really liked that sort of honest conversation. And look, we always have a conversation with our players in terms of where they're missing or what sort of aspect they're not nailing or where they're sort of a, uh, where they're doing good. So I think it's, it's, it's a good conversation as well to have with players that look, we have sort of reached a limit. Is it because of you? Is it because of me? Is it because of some physical aspect, mental aspect, those sort of a thing? So in my decision, my coach played a major role at that point. Yep. So, okay. That's really good wisdom and very, I guess, forward thinking of a coach to bring that awareness to you, because maybe that wouldn't have been as clear for you at that age, right? Where maybe you were so close to badminton, you maybe that's all that you saw. And then it just opened up your mind to what else is out there and what else you can do. Stay within badminton, but it doesn't always mean that you have to be the professional player. So when you look down that, like, what was the pathway from there? Like, when did you start to consider going to South Australia, University of South Australia. And what did you do in the meantime in India? Was it a transition straight over to South Australia? Or Henry said in the introduction that you were with the Sports Authority of India in badminton, hockey, boxing, judo, athletics, et cetera. So what did that pathway look like for you when you decided to make that shift from professional badminton? When I sort of left badminton as a professional player, my whole point was I want to do a career where I can stay in touch with my sport. So that's where the physio came in part. So like from the first year of the physio, it was like four and a half year course. From the first year of the physio, I was dead sure that I want to be a sports physio. I want to stay in touch with the badminton because that was the whole point of joining physio. At that point, then after the course, I was looking at doing the master's in sports physiotherapy. 
at that point, University of South Australia was offering the best masters in sports your course in the entire world. It was very much hands-on. As a student or as a master's student, I have been through a fitness test. I have been through ice baths, contrast baths. I have sort of implemented various nutritional strategies on me. I've sort of implemented different physical aspects of it. So the whole point was in the master's that you want to experience everything before you tell someone else to do it. So you can't you can't sort of sit on the sideline and tell someone to get into ice bath. You should know how it feels. So I really like that structure of doing the master's. So that's why I chose University of South Australia and went to Adelaide. In the meantime, after doing my undergrad, I was working with the Sports Authority of India, as you mentioned, that was for two years. So I was working in the local center. And this is where all the other sports came into me. So I was working with the judo team because I was a sole physio of the entire center. So my responsibility was looking after the load management, looking after the periodization, strength and conditioning, injury management for all those sports. So it was a really interesting journey. And I feel that that helped me a lot as a physio for badminton. So for example, when I was I was working with badminton players, I was thinking more shoulder from that sort of a rotation and throwing point of view. But then while working with some of the boxers, we came to know some different techniques about the shoulder. We came to know about some different exercises, some different injuries. And that can happen in badminton players too. It's very rare, but it still happens. So in terms of helping that 1% injury, that was a very interesting journey. Also, when I was working with Sports Authority of India, now all the Australian listeners, Sports Authority of India is as good as AIS. So it's up to that level. So when I was working over there, it was a really good experience working with all the coaches. So because every coach has a different mentality, different background, they have sort of a different approach towards the game. Some of them are focusing too much on the physical conditioning. Some of them are completely oblivious towards the physical conditioning. Some of them has as a different sort of a thought process in terms of skill training as well as the physical conditioning. Some of them try to mingle together. So it was it was more of a people management and it was more of a getting coaches on board, working as a team for one player. So at that point, we had few players who went for Olympics in that time. So that was that was a London one. And uh, when we were working with them, it was like how their training changed, how their outlook towards the game changed once they're into that Olympic stage. So I think those all small, small experiences helped me to get to a University of South Australia as a, as a more experienced physio. And then the University of South Australia was a complete game changer, which helped me further to advance my physio skills. Yeah, those varied experiences that you're discussing about Pinnacan has probably helped you maintain a strong advantage as a physio with that wealth of experience that you can apply all those learnings from you're taken from the other sports when you're at the Sports Authority of India as well. And now, of course, going through the Masters in South Australia, I guess you've had the different kind of learnings there between both India and Australia. When you do compare the kinds of practices and especially because as you said in in UniSA you had this sort of game-changing sort of experience where you kind of get exposed to all those different types of tests that you do on athletes as well is that experience very different to what you had learned when you were in India and how do those practices differ between the two countries 
Yes, that's a great question. And it was a major difference as far as the physio field is concerned. So in India, when I learned my physio, we were more talking about some protocols. We were more talking about a little bit of a recipe-based science going towards the management or going towards the performance announcement. But when I was at the University of South Australia, it shaped my thinking. So we were not talking about the recipes anymore. We were more talking about what to do with it, like how exactly that recipe came in picture. So thinking more about the thought process rather than the actual sort of a format of the format of the injury management. Also, when I was studying with the UniSA, of course, I was working with some cricket team. I was working with some AFL, like not AFL one, but the local footy players. And that was a good addition to what sort of a different sport can bring you, bring some challenges into you. As I said, it was sort of a game changer because it shaped my thinking and it put me into the discipline. So if I have to give you an example, it was a, it was a one-year course where we were on the hospital placements in the morning. We were doing lectures in the afternoon. Then we were attending footy trainings in the evening. So this is like an entire week. On top of that, on Saturdays and Sundays, you are attending some games. And plus, on top of that, you're doing assignments, you're implementing gym program on yourself. Like I have put myself for six weeks into hard training just to feel how what an athlete goes through to achieve a one particular level. So all this sort of a practical experiences, which I did not have in India, the UniSA exposed me to. In terms of a difference in terms of practices as well, I think there is more awareness for the grassroots sports in Australia as compared to India, at least when I was growing up, when I was playing badminton, there wasn't much awareness about the badminton. But in Australia, I think there is a bit more awareness around it. And that really helped me. Like, for example, every player was on board with the strength and conditioning plan. Every player knew exactly what periodization is. Every player was aware that they have to manage the load or get the mental conditioning going through and all those sort of things. So when you get that sort of a positive response from a player or a coach, it helps you as a physio as well. It motivates you as a physio to get in there and do it more. So I think that was the key difference. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I think you definitely did. And I want to go into that a little bit deeper in terms of theories or modalities of treatment or periodization or anything. In, was there anything that stuck out to you that when you first heard it in Australia, you thought, Hmm, that's not what I learned or that's not what I thought. Was there anything that was like vastly different in the teaching or in the theories? I would say the vastly different teaching was step away from your comfort zone, like step away from those recipes. Like when I was studying physio in India, it was more about what do you do with the ACL or what do you do with the rotator cuff injury in zero to two weeks, two to four weeks, four to six, that sort of a recipe base. And then you have to achieve that. But what I learned more in University of South Australia is that every person is different. So someone someone might be coming out of rotator cuff injury after their ACL injury. So they already have that sort of a neuro tag, that sort of a fear in their mind that they're going to lose the income out of sports, that they're going to lose the career out of sports and all those sort of things. So University of South Australia taught me that every person is different and you you can't go by recipe. You just have to cater it to that person. So for example, if we are baking a cake, someone, someone likes more chocolate in it, someone likes more raspberries in it. So if you are inviting someone, then you have to make sure that that person likes what you're cooking. So same thing with that. Also, one thing, another thing which I learned at UniSA was a pain science. So like a specifically answer your question, Jeff, 
the pain science has evolved quite a bit since we learned it. So as we know that now that we everyone knows that the pain is a hundred percent product of brain. So yes, there is some physical aspect going on, but there are a lot of thought processes, there are a lot of memories, there are a lot of misconceptions you held in your brain, and that dictates your output, uh, like output towards the pain. Let me give you an example. So if I'm sitting in a pretty much stressful meeting and suddenly someone punches me in the nose and that sort of my nose starts bleeding, I'm going to get quite a bit of pain, anger, irritation, frustration, all those sort of things coming in picture. And if I get the same sort of injury while playing AFL Grand Final, I'm not going to think about it. So physically, I have the same injury. If I get an ankle sprain while playing a match, which I'm losing, as opposed to if I get an ankle sprain when I'm winning the match, when it's a grand final. So that there's going to be two different outlooks towards it. So the physical part of the injury still remains same. It's how you approach that injury. And that is decided by the brain within split of a second. So brain sort of analyzes your memory, your misconceptions, your beliefs, your systems. You sort of analyzes your situation and those sort of things. So that was a sort of a groundbreaking stuff in University of South Australia. And there were two guys over there who are the, like a lead pain science researchers in the world. And in the entire world, whatever the pain science research is coming, it's coming from Adelaide. Yes, go Adelaide. I'm an Adelaidean as well, Finnegan, so I thought I'd take that one and, <laughs> and, just, and just roll with the support Andrew, there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject here and say that your back injury is just all because you have emotional issues. Otherwise, your back wouldn't be so sore. So suck it up. Suck it up, Henry. Your back's not actually that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I had framed myself internally. My mind had just decided that I was in, in a lot of pain and that the medications weren't helping. No, I mean, seriously, like Pinnikin, yeah, I think that's a very um, unique, interesting perspective to have. I think for, I don't know whether it might be an undergraduate thing or perhaps Jeff can speak to his experience going through dental school as well, going through veterinary school here in that it is very recipe-based, what I learned as well. Of course, there is that problem-solving approach and, and sort of individualizing that, that investigation and diagnostic process. But when it comes to sort of treatment and management protocols, what we learned, especially from an undergraduate perspective or, or my perspective, was always this particular disease, A, B, C, D, this is what you do, four to six weeks, X, you know, Y, and then, you know, revisit in two weeks or whatever it might be. So it's good to good to hear about the more individualized approach to to managing i guess people not necessarily just from a physiotherapy perspective or patients but just in terms of whatever's going on whether that be physically mentally etc so it's very it's very good that uh, you were able to i guess get exposure to such um leading thought leaders when it comes to sort of that management of cases as well as the pain science in itself, which is quite interesting, I find. Because yeah, as you said, you know, physically could be everyone gets the same exact injury, yet how they interpret or how their body or mind interprets it is something completely unique to them. And I suppose we could spend an entire podcast talking about sports psychology or psychology in general. But yeah, I'm, I guess the question when it comes to sports psychology that that I want to ask you is that seeing as you are so interested in sports psychology, why didn't you pursue that instead? Short answer, at that point, there were not many sports psychologists around. So there was no one sort of a, to look up to. 
there was no pathway out there when I was in India. And I didn't know many psychologists as well. So it was a bit tricky course. We hardly had few universities and I didn't know where to go after I've done the psychology. But for the physio, there was a clear path. I know that I have to do the physio, then there's a master's in sports physio, and then I can work on it. Plus, sports psychology limits me to that psychology part as only the psychology part. While being a sports physio, I can work as a strength and conditioning guy. I can work as a recovery one, recovery specialist. I can work, I can integrate some mindfulness and psychologist sort of a tools as well. So that gives me a broader aspect and a broader ways to manage an athlete. So that's, that's why I chose physio. Yeah, great. And I'll probably just talk to the previous point, Henry, when you mentioned about vet school, veterinary school, and from dental school point of view, yeah, it is very recipe-based as well. You do step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. And I'll speak from a teaching point of view as well, because I do teach the up-and-coming, well, the dental students, the up-and-coming up and dentists. And because their base knowledge is nothing or very low, then the only way to teach it, I don't think it's a university's fault or I think that you just definitely have to learn the recipes because the recipes give you that real base. And Pinnikin, you were talking about, you knew all the recipes from India when you studied physio. And then when you came to South Australia, it was more that you had the recipes in your back pocket but then now you know how the recipes work, then you're not too scared to add more chocolate, add more raspberries, add more this, more that. Because if you went in without the recipe, you just have a chocolate and raspberry cake and nothing else. hundred <laughs> percent. I totally agree. But I feel the one part was different that UniSA yeah. gave me a confidence to sort of modify that recipe. Earlier, I was just sticking to the recipe and, and was a bit afraid to try a few new things. So, and I, I totally agree. I work as a clinical educator for um, some universities. I've worked with the Melbourne Uni, Letro. And yes, the students are taught recipes. Some of them, they like that. That's how they sort of a, a teaching work or that's how they learn, to be honest. But while some of them are open-minded and I think as a teacher, you and me, Jeff, we should sort of encourage that open-minded approach. Mm. Yep. Except if it's just evidence-based that you just need to do it a certain way. Then I'm very strict on the students. Anyway. But that's what I'm saying. It, 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 it can be evidence-guided. It doesn't have to be evidence-based. Yeah. yeah, for certain things. We'll leave it like that. <laughs> I, won't, I, won't, <laughs> I won't go into the dental specifications of chemical bonding where it needs to be exactly this much. Now, just a quick word from our sponsors. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing, bright, and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now, it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high-quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at volantbadminton. But that's okay. So Pinnikin, let's get into the badminton side of things now. We've spoken a lot about your physio background and how you've become the physio you are now. And of course, still learning as everyone always is. But for a badminton player or badminton listener out there, what is your take on the role of a physiotherapist in badminton? So whether you're an athlete or if you're just an everyday badminton player, maybe you're not going to try to represent your country or your state, but you do play badminton. 
What's the role of a physiotherapist in badminton? Physio in badminton, I'll probably divide it into three parts. One is more during the tournament, one is more during the in-season, and one is more during the like off-season. So in terms of a tournament, if there's very little we can do. So this is not a time to change your grip. This is not a time to suddenly change your string tension. This is not a time to build up a good strength or plyometrics and those sort of things. So that during the tournament, what you want to do is just maintain what you're doing. And you just want to make sure that you're sort of preventing injuries, you're not overloading the athlete because the whole focus is winning that tournament. As a health professional for a tournament, as we all know, the BWF has a rule that we can't spend too much time treating someone on court. So as a health professional for a tournament, I get max, what, three minutes to manage an athlete on the court. So if you get injured during the match, there is very little anyone can do because we have some limited time, we have some limited techniques, and um, Sometimes as a physio, I have to manage to stop the bleeding, stop the nose blades, skin cuts, and all those sort of things because we have that rule in badminton. So that's more during the tournament. So also when you're during the tournament, you want to make sure that the athlete is all prepared for what he's going to do. So whether you need to manage stiff joints, you need to manage probably the muscles, which are a bit sore from playing. So really help them in the recovery. In terms of in-season management, now the best example for in-season will be you're playing two tournaments. You're playing one tournament in Perth and you've got a one-week break and you're playing the second tournament in Adelaide. So something like that. So in that one week, again, this is not a time to drastically change certain stuff. It's more of a time to make sure that the athlete has recovered very well from the previous tournament. So they've got a good rest. You're managing their load well because during the tournament, it's, they're just going to play back-to-back matches. They're completely focused. They're mentally exhausted as well in that sort of a framework. So I want to make sure that they're recovered from the ankle sprain. I want to make sure that there is no stiff joints. I want to make sure that the muscles are very well, nice and mobile. I want to make sure they've got a good flexibility, mobility, and all those sort of things in that in-season sort of a management. But again, working towards the next tournament. So we have got that sort of a goal within a week where it's more sort of an injury management and the prevention point of view. Again, if I'm traveling with the team, then my, as I said, my job will be being a physio, being a massage therapist, being a recovery specialist, and all those sort of things as well. So that's one between the in-season and tournament. Also, let me just go back and add as a tournament physio as well, what I do. Many of my physio colleagues from different sports might not agree with this, but I feel if I'm working as a tournament health professional, my job is to make sure that everyone related to that tournament is healthy. So for example, if coach is having a bad back, so that's going to affect the player. So I just, I can't say that I'm just, I'm here only for the players. I have to treat coach as well. So all those sort of things, if I'm working as a tournament physio, then the umpires, linesmen, all those sort of things as well, take a major role, referees, because that's ultimately going to affect the tournament. If I'm working with the team, so whoever is connected with the team, it's my responsibility. So that's more with the tournament. The off-season is the fun part because in the off-season, a coach might want to change certain technique, coach might want to change footwork, some string tensions, some grip, and all those sort of things. So my job is to manage 
athletes so they're ready for the change. So we want to make sure that the athlete are strong enough to sustain that sort of a change. Our athletes are strong enough to adapt and improve from that change and they're not going to they're not going to get hurt by those change. Off-season is the time where I want to check the parameters. I want to check how's their shoulder strength, what's their uh, beat test or the yo-yo test score, or what's their triple hop distance like as compared to the previous. Have they improved? Have they, are the same? Or have they gone down? If they have gone down, why they have gone down? The off-season is the time where I want to make sure that the athlete is doing well in terms of a physical and mental part of it and analyzing their performance as well. Now, let me make one thing clear at this point is when I say analyzing performance, it's not about the skill or the game or the tactics. That's not my job. We've got excellent coaches out there who can analyze that. My analysis is how many injuries did they have? Did they recover from those injuries? How often they were feeling unstable in their shoulder? How often they were not recovered from the previous tournament? Was there any physical or mental aspect which stopped them from approaching the tournament with 100%? So that's sort of my analysis for past year. All things happens in off-season. So off-season sort of a really is a good time to sit down, plan. And luckily, BWF sort of releases calendar very early. Not in the COVID time, though. That's a different story. But BWF release as well. So we can really plan how the athlete is going to go through. So they might be going on a big Europe trip where they're playing in every country, or they might be completely like from Australia, they're going to the Canada and playing in Canada. So that's a jet lag aspect as well. The environmental aspects, it might be cold out there. So all those sort of things we need to plan and work around. So we have a, like a really blueprint in the off season and then in season is just sticking to it and adapting and changing it but not changing too much. You're not sort of doing a big groundbreaking change. Off-season is the time where you want to make sure that the strength goes up, you're doing plyometrics, you're doing the strength endurance stuff, and all those sort of things. So this is the time to get those heavy deadlifts, heavy squats and stuff, because your other load is less. Your physical load is less, plus the mental load in terms of stress for the tournament, looking up to that tournament is less as well. So this is a really good time where I need to make sure that I'm talking to coach, I'm talking to player, I'm talking to anyone who is involved in that sport and setting out the goals, where we want to go. And my job is to look after that physical and mental conditioning during that. Yeah, that's a really good... From the sounds of it, Pinnikin, it sounds like that off-season is where all the, uh, the beauty happens. I know like the true physio aspects come into play, of course during the tournament, when it's in season. Yeah, there is sort of the the key things that need to be done during those periods as well. But it really sounds like that off-season is where you can really get down to being creative and working with these players to help, whether it be building the strength and conditioning or sort of planning ahead as well. So that gives, I think, listeners a really high-level understanding of what's involved in terms of a professional athlete and what happens in terms of their physio and, and building that team that team environment, like you said, one team, one dream, you're, you're treating everyone in the team, which is great. But yeah, in terms of those listeners who are you know, the everyday badminton player, the social badminton player, where does the physio's role play in their lives? Of course, we can talk about myself and, and my lower back injury. But in terms of those that are listening, they're social players, everyday players, how, how does physio fit in their lives as well? So... One thing for sure is in terms of injury management, of course, if we go down that path, if you have an injury, physio will definitely help you. But 
fingers crossed hope so then no one no one should go through this injuries and things um we need to understand and that's what i tell few of the junior players as well that we need to understand that badminton is a skill you don't get strong by doing a skill you don't get strong by performing the skill you need to be strong enough to perform that skill like you don't get strong by playing soccer you need to be strong enough to play soccer where do you think cristiano ronaldo is getting all those muscles that's not by playing soccer because he's putting that sort of a a strength work in the gym why do you think the roger federer and djokovic are playing at the end of 40 like that djokovic federer lost in wimbledon that's a different story but longevity in the sport is coming from the hard work which they're putting in terms of a physical conditioning so with the social badminton players and everyday badminton players i just want to tell them that think about the load like you don't want to like be completely inactive and especially which happened last year like people were completely inactive and suddenly they want to get out there and they want to play competitive sport and they want to play they want to give their 100% but are you ready for it let's say your capacity is like a 1 liter water bottle and you're trying to put 2 liters into it that doesn't work so either you increase your capacity or you decrease your load so 100% go social badminton and everyday badminton is great just make sure you're you're taking care of the muscles and the joints so you are well prepared to play badminton and that's not related to you henry <laughs> it's just general advice we related to henry and i was laughing throughout that because you were talking about especially during covid where people do nothing and then they get back on court and and try to run around and jump smash and do all the normal things they used to do and i'm just laughing at henry because he may or may not have done that i won't disclose that it's up to him that's a patient doctor confidentiality i won't disclose that either. no that's okay i, I will disclose that for listeners who, who want to <laughs> laugh yes I literally just sat at home and worked during COVID and then when we could finally play I just went out and yeah put my heart on court you know. <laughs> so Henry why don't we jump into that and use you as a bit of a case study for kind of like a non full professional badminton player so you you play weekly you you play social you play for fun as well um but you are competitive as a lot of us we still want to get out there and win and play well. So while we're on the topic of the the everyday and everyday badminton player or social badminton player and how physio plays a role in that and your injury why don't we dig into that I don't mind as long as Henry is okay Yeah yeah that's okay you've signed the uh, confidentiality waiver already Pinnikin or I have but <laughs> but let's talk about it I guess the just for a bit of context for those listeners I have had lower back injuries in the past a couple of acute injuries when i was playing a bit more competitively even when i was quite young when i was you know around 16 or 17 years old i i've pulled my lower back a couple of times and and since then i had not sort of stopped playing competitively when i got to university and then just sort of transitioned into more of a social badminton player and was playing i would say relatively regularly maybe once a week twice a week and of course covid hit in 2020 now covid-19 right so 2019 but all throughout 2020 we were in and out of lockdowns and certainly didn't get much opportunity to play sport and obviously when we had the opportunity to come back and have a bit of more freedom i went straight to court and and just yeah laid it all out there played as much as i could just that pent up demand decided to come out and yeah probably I had a niggling sort of lower back discomfort for quite a long time before I saw Pinnikin. I'm telling Pinnikin my secret now. 
that I did have, a, I guess, a lower back soreness throughout coming out of lockdown period and I was still playing weekly. And then most recently, we went into another short lockdown here in Melbourne, Victoria. And we were in lockdown for a, to two to three weeks. And again, I didn't play. And finally, when I got back to being on court and, and recording some videos with Jeff, we were actually recording that exact moment. And you can see me move slightly. Slightly is, is not sort of an understatement. I literally moved slightly and my, lower <laughs> and my lower back seized up and I was in a world of pain. Now, Pinnikin, how would you manage me? <laughs> how did you manage me? <laughs> uh, for the, all the listeners, yes. Henry like moved slightly, like, really, really slightly. But it, it wasn't great that they were recording the video. So <laughs> I believe Henry now. I've, got, I've seen the evidence. So <laughs> there we go. So yeah, first when Henry came in, my first thinking was, is there anything nasty going on? Is there anything, disc injury? Is there anything like a vertebral fractures or is there any ligamentary stuff or is there any nerve sort of a pain coming on? Which was not. So there were a few questions which Henry was asked, negative, all those sort of things. So the next stage of my thinking is why it is happening now. Like what changed? He has been playing badminton. He's not new to the badminton. It's not a new skill to the playing badminton. And that's when we started backtracking. Like, what did you do before? When was the last time you played badminton? Like, what did you do last year? And that's when we realized we sort of didn't do much. We were sort of a bit out of touch. And then we got back and we were expecting it to be just at the same level where we lost, where we left last time. And of course, the body wasn't ready for it. In my experience with the load management work, which I do, is most of the injuries, like I, I would even put more than 90% of the injuries happen because of doing too much too soon after doing too little for too long. So you suddenly want to do too much too soon where you haven't done anything for a long time. And then you expect your body to be at the same level. And it's, it's not only with the sport. Like if you ask, let's say I can, I can see guitar with Henry. So if you ask any guitarist, if they haven't played guitar for like two, three years, um, they're going to be a bit rusty. They're, they're not going to hit the perfect note out there. And that's what happens with any sport as well. So in Henry's case, what we figured out that the body wasn't ready for it, body wasn't strong enough to perform that skill. And at one point, body was like, that's it, that's enough. I'm just going to go into my battery saver mode. I'm just going to tighten everything up just to protect Henry. So it's not a wrong or it's not a bad pain, I would say. It's more about the protective pain. The body was telling Henry that, yes, we are not ready for it. Don't do it. I'm just going to create a pain. So your automatic response is stay away from it. Just like we get a swelling after ankle sprain. It creates a little bit of a cushioning around the ankle. So you notice it, there's a bit of a pain. So you automatically um, stay away from doing single leg jumps and those sort of things. So that's what happened. And then we realized that there were a few stiff joints, some tight muscles to be taken care of. And once we reached that stage where the pain wasn't a dominating picture in Henry's case, and it was more stiffness, tightness, that's when we started more of a prevention that we want to make sure that the muscles are strong enough to perform that skill. And now that's at the stage where we are doing more strength and conditioning and doing some exercises to make sure that our hips are strong, the backs are strong, the abs are strong, the hip flexors are strong. So all those muscles are strong enough to support that system. 
Imagine a rubber band. If you take a rubber band and if you put a rubber band around something, if it's loose, what do you do? You just, you just double it up. Same thing happens with the muscle. Muscles are like this. If they're not strong enough and you ask them to perform a certain skill, what they do is they just go tight. Now, they're not going tight to sort of a bad thing. They're just going tight so they can protect you and you can perform that skill. Any amount of passive work, especially in Henry's case, when we were doing some mobilizations, foam rolling, massage, all those sort of things, it helped Henry from here, that tight position, to come out here. So it's sort of a normal position for the muscle. But if you're not strong at this position, after two or three days, the muscles are again going to go tight. So it's just a cycle which you can break by getting it strong. And that's where, for Henry, we started getting into that strength. We started with the deadlifts, squats, and all those sort of things. We just make sure the glutes are strong and the back is strong. Yeah, awesome. And I guess when you're talking about the strength and getting that strength, otherwise it's going to tighten up again. And this relates again to the everyday badminton player. Like I'm sure there's a lot of badminton players out there who just play badminton because it's their form of fitness, right? And they've never thought that they needed to go to the gym or to get strong to prevent injuries or even to enhance their badminton because maybe they're not that serious about competition in badminton. So what would you say to those people who say, don't work on any strength and just get on court all the time and just, just play, play, play? Is there anything that you'd suggest for them to do? Yes, I would 100% encourage everyone to get on the strength work because the time period after injury is quite a bit. Like for Henry's case, we are almost three to four weeks away from the badminton with, with a simple back injury, which is not creating any major trouble. But touch wood, it should never happen to anyone. But think about some rotator cuff issues or some ACL. That just puts you off straight six months. Six months, you're out of the court anyway. And if you have a great support like Carolina Moraine has, she's just back on court like in day, like second week. Of course, she's a professional player. But for everyday badminton, I would strongly encourage to get the strength work because it prevents the injury. It sort of uh, puts you in that safety net where you can play as much badminton as you want and you're ready for it without even thinking at the back of the mind that my elbow is getting sore or my knee is getting sore or... I'm not going to hit a smash because my shoulder is sore. So there's no sort of a way away from the strength training, I would say. And that doesn't mean you have to go to the gym. At what level you're playing, you can do some exercises at home. You don't have to have a fancy weight. You can take a two-liter water bottle and that will act as a 1.5 to 2 kg weight as well. So you don't need those fancy things. You just need to make sure that you're ready for that skill. Yeah, cool. And I, I like the fact that it is something that you can do at home or you can do, do in your normal regime. You don't need to spend money on a gym membership if you don't want to, or even if you have a few dumbbells lying at home, then that, that could be useful enough to at least get you on your way to preventing these injuries. I totally agree. And especially last year during the pandemic, when all the gyms were closed, I was working with few para badminton players. I was working with few players. And what we did was use a chair at home, use bands, use two-liter water bottles, use a table, all those sort of things. So there are use a step at home. So that can provide you a really good sort of a exercise regime to be able to perform your skill. Yeah, I definitely think that I've learned from you, Pinnick, and there's a lot that we can do in the home setting. Now, if there are listeners that are I guess interested in doing that because there's just information overload out there online, you know, things are free to access. I mean, at what level do you go, okay, 
you can learn to do those exercises by what you see on, say, YouTube, Google, etc., WebMD, whatever it might be. Or at what point do you go, okay, if you really want to start developing these strength and conditioning exercises, whether that be just at home, can you do that just purely online and do it properly? Or do you need to come see, for example, yourself or, or, or another strength and conditioning person, trainer? What's the kind of pathway there? Are there options for learning about these strength and conditioning exercises and doing them properly just from the comfort of your home? There are 100%. Uh, there are lots of resources available, including your Instagram influencer to a proper paid website. But what I'm saying is, first, of course, consult a professional to make sure that there is nothing nasty happening in your say in your body so for example you don't want to go and just lift heavy weights because they look sexy when you have a, like a rotator cuff injury you're just going to make things worse so first make sure that you're ready for what you're going to do second if you google deadlift there are thousand websites and there are two thousand ways of telling you what deadlift is and how to do it you just need to match with your skill set what you want to do everyday person did not have to go to a super deep squat. For example, I treat few cyclists, I work with few cyclists. In their cycling sort of a sport, they're never going into deep squat. So why you want to train that range? Why you want to push that knee into that deep squat when you're not going to use it, which is not functional for them? As opposed to, I'm currently working with one wicketkeeper who plays for Victoria. As a wicketkeeper, she has to go into deep squat. So for her, my approach is, yes, you need that deep range. So we are going to train into that deep range as well. So this is where the professional can make a difference in terms of addressing your strength and conditioning needs. You can definitely do it online as long as you have some basic understanding of the strength and conditioning. You have some basic equipments. Of course, you can access the gyms and all the other things. Just make sure you're getting a professional guidance and not someone who just wears a fancy clothes and has a million followers on the Instagram without any degree or something like that. But what happens with, and that's what we realized, especially during stage four last year, right now for the overseas listener, Melbourne went into stage four last year for almost three months where everything was shut. We had the 5K rule and we couldn't go out more than four reasons. Before that, we had a lockdown as well. So what we realized during that stage four is you hit a ceiling effect when you're working from home. You can progress up to certain level at home. So at home exercises, unless you have a good gym setup. Now, not everyone has a great gym setup. Like someone who is living in an apartment might not be able to have a massive leg press machine in their room and stuff like that. So you reach that ceiling effect. And when you reach that ceiling effect, you're not improving. And at that point, you require that extra bit. That time, that point, you require the gym. Like, let's understand a simple concept that body loves the challenge. The mind and body loves the challenge. So imagine if I'm lifting, say, 5 kg dumbbell. If I'm lifting 5 kg dumbbell for entire one year, I'm not getting strong. I'm just maintaining that. If I want to get strong, I need to push from 5 to 7, 7 to 10, 10 to 15, that sort of thing. So there has to be always challenge. Even in the academic sort of thing, the grade grade 4 syllabus is different from the grade 8 syllabus. So there has to be always a challenge and that's how we improve. So that challenge hits a ceiling effect when you're working from home and that's where you require a little bit extra. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, which... I guess we can't control whether we're out of lockdown or not. And at least maintaining is better than losing. But yeah, there will be a limit on what you can do with 
the things at home with your body weight and stuff in terms of the amount of strength that you can build. So I think that's really important for listeners to hear. And, and we did have another, we had a sports physiologist, exercise physiologist on very early on in the podcast. So the listeners might've heard that. And that was talking about strength training in preventing injuries as well, which this is the theme that's coming up a lot in this podcast episode. So for all the listeners out there, I think it's really useful to start on the the strength side of things just so that it doesn't interrupt. You might not want to play for the state or the country, but it doesn't interrupt your badminton because you'll be less prone to getting injuries. So Pinnikin, we've been talking for almost an hour now, so we need to start wrapping up. I know it's going, going really quickly. And this is a, a question, and this is a poll question that we've been asking several of our guests in previous episodes. The question is, what are the most, the three most important things, in your opinion, that help you to get the most power out of your smash? So out of all the things, three things. Okay, so that's a great question. First, of course, one is timing. You have to time that well. Now, as I said, the timing is your coach can, of course, teach you about that. Um, it's not a physio's role. Second thing is a good shoulder strength. You just want to make sure that your shoulder has a good range and strength to hit the smash. And the third thing I feel is legs. You need to have that strength in the legs to develop that elastic strength, which goes on hitting a smash. Think about a tennis serve. You don't serve with the shoulder. The Federer sort of bends his knee, go down, and then releases that elastic energy into the serve. The same thing happens with our smash as well, that your legs need to have a good strength so it can transfer that strength, the power, to shoulder to hit the good smash. Awesome. So we've got timing. One vote for timing. We've got mm-hmm. one vote for shoulder. So shoulder strength and range of motion, mobility. And lastly, legs. So there's uh, elastic power or that that basically the power's coming from the legs, not just isolated from the body, which is true. It is a full body movement that requires a that requires everything to recruit in a succinct way in order for you to transmit a lot of power to the shot. So if we have a quick look at our counts now, in terms of the top things for our most powerful smash, we've got one vote at grip. We've got two votes at timing or point of impact. We've got four votes for shoulder, which is the highest. We've got one for wrist, one for core, two for hips, and one for legs, which legs and hips is is similar. We will separate that out, but hips and legs, very, very similar. So that is our poll so far. We will keep adding to it. Now, Pinnikin, we are going to wrap up here. You did talk about consulting a professional for someone out there who is looking for some guidance as to what they could introduce into a, a strength program, whether they've done it before, whether they're completely new to strength programs. In terms of how to get in contact with you personally, whether it's at your clinic in Melbourne for the Melbourne-based listeners, or even if they want to contact you by email, online, on socials, whatever that might be, how can they do so? So I work very close to MSAC. So I work in St. Kilda with the Melbourne Physiotherapy Group, where I work as a full-time physiotherapist over there. So you can get in touch with me when you're in Melbourne, or you can get in touch with me on Instagram, Sports Physiotherapist Pinakin. You can get me in touch on Facebook, Pinakin Gorsay Sports Physiotherapist. If you're a badminton player, of course, you will see me around different tournaments, working as a physio. You will see me at the junior development camps. Just get in touch. 
Also, you can just email me at the physiotherapistpinnakin.gmail.com and we'll probably mention that in the description as well. But there are nowadays, of course, there are various ways to get in touch with that. And of course, we with the private work, I do some telehealth as well. So I've been last year, I was working with one player in Canada. So that can be done as well. So for the, all the overseas listeners. Awesome. So for those listening and wanting to get in touch, we will make sure to pop that in the description below. And I hope that listeners have enjoyed this episode. I certainly have. And it, it's great to, I think, for everyone to hear about what potential injuries and how to manage them for both the social everyday player as well as the professional athletes. And by below in the description, I meant in the description on our website, by the way, for those listening. So when you do tune into the episode, it'll be there. But hopefully, yeah, with this conversation, you feel a little bit closer to Pinnikin, especially those of you in Melbourne who may have seen him around, especially when it comes to the badminton community, which is quite small. So hopefully you do say hi to him if you do see him around. Otherwise, make sure to connect with him if you have any questions or want to get in touch. So again, from Jeff and I and the Badminton Podcast and everybody listening, Pinnikin, thank you for coming on to this episode. Thank you so much, Jeff and Henry. I, I really enjoyed talking with you and I've been following your work since a long time and I've seen lots of different aspects of badminton you're covering at the Badminton Podcast, which is, which is great. And I guess that was the one thing badminton community was missing and you guys have provided that, so which, is, which is awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Pinnikin. I hope everyone else feels the same way. Thanks again, and we'll see everyone on the next episode. Thanks, Finnegan. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too. Because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.